Hello, welcome to the fifth episode of Calling All Stations. I'm Christian Walmart, and as usual, I'll be exploring topical issues in the world of transport along with Mark Walker of Cochitamus. Hello, Christian. Hi there, Mark. This week, we've got quite an interesting selection of issues to cover. Uh, Later on, we'll be looking at the government's announcement on the awarding of funds from the UK Leveling Up Fund and where those have impacted on transport schemes. We'll also be looking at the emerging technology around driverless buses. But we're starting off today with uh, something very close to home where you are in London, and that's the expansion of the ultra-low emission zone especially for the benefit of people not in London. Would you like to explain to us what that's all about? Uh, well, yes, uh, it's, it's been around for uh, uh, more than a year now for people in central London. And so uh, this was implemented quite controversially by uh, Sadiq Khan as part of the initiative to clean up the air in London. As we know, thousands of people every year die as a result of uh, pollution in the air caused by and large, by uh, transport and also other things. And so uh, Sadiq uh, introduced initially the ultra-low emission zone to people uh, living uh, in the central London uh, boroughs. And the idea is that if you don't have a, a compliant diesel car, which is basically a fairly new one, or uh, and you, you're... Uh, don't have a petrol car, you don't have an electric car, if you're using old diesel cars, then you have to pay uh, £12.50 every time you use the car. And this is, uh, you know, every day of the year, effectively, uh, apart from, I think, from Christmas Day. So it's not like uh, the congestion charge, which is only for certain times of the day, uh, and it's not, uh, uh, and it's absolutely mandatory uh, for all non-compliant cars. Um, and, uh, you know, it has passed off reasonably smoothly. There's several years. Remember, Sadiq was first elected in 2016 and made this as one of his uh, uh, commitments. Uh, so uh, there was a lot of warning about this. And now, uh, uh, the controversial aspect, because I think initially, the initial... Uh, introduction passed which was in April 2021 passed off reasonably smoothly you know there wasn't huge bits of fuss of course there's the the usual uh, complaints and we'll come on to those in a minute but uh, it's now going to be introduced from the 29th of August uh, this year into all the London boroughs and the big issue there of course is that lots of cars come across the M25 boundary or into into London from outside London and probably never go to central London because of the congestion charge anyway or because, you know, you've got to be pretty mad to drive in central London anyway. Um, so uh, even as a resident, I haven't driven in central London for years and years and years. I just wouldn't dream of it. But lots and lots of people use their cars in outer London boroughs. And, uh, you know, this is uh, clearly going to affect a lot of people. And, and what's the anguish then? There seems to be quite a lot of distress, really. Is it a very punitive charge that people will be facing? Well, I mean, if you think about it, if you use your car every day, 
you know, in the in, in the week, that's uh, five times uh, twelve pounds fifty, sixty-two pounds uh, fifty uh, to come into London every day. It's going to act as a deterrent, which is uh, so. It's a kind of, of perimeter charge, is it, that you you pay when you cross the? the uh, no, you the people in the outer London boroughs will pay as soon as they jump in their car. I see. Of course, actually. Uh, there's a limited amount of cameras and, and nobody quite knows where they are. But I suspect that if you make a very short journey, you might not be captured by uh, a camera. But uh, essentially, uh, it's £12.50 for getting in your car. Now, the point that uh, Sadiq and supporters of this scheme make is uh, twofold. One, they say, look, this is an emergency. There's people dying as a result of this. Famous, uh, famously, there was uh, a little girl who died, uh, who lived on the main road, who, who died uh, of uh, asthma attacks or whatever. And it was very much found by the coroner that this was the result of uh, fumes and, and pollution. So, uh, you know, it's actually really kind of documented instances of uh, people dying for this. Uh, but also, uh, they point out that uh, 85% of cars are compliant and that it's only a minority, 15%, that will have to pay this. Now, the opponents and say, well, this is likely to be poorer people. This is likely to be you know, your, your average plumber in his white van and so on. To which my answer would be, actually, poorer people, remember, car ownership in London is, is just around 50%. Poorer people don't drive, right? And, of course, some poor people drive, but all taxes are going to impact on uh, some poorer people. You can't get round that. But by and large, uh, you know, this is a, a tax on polluting vehicles, which are likely to be kind of, you know, relatively older vehicles and also bigger vehicles, um, and, uh, you know, it is something of an emergency. People are dying from this. So, you know, I certainly uh, support the idea. I can see all the fuss coming up about it from the usual sources, you know, saying it's anti-motorist, it's, it's a great imposition. But you get that with any kind of measure. And I think you have to look to the previous introduction of the scheme, which went off reasonably smoothly. And, you know... There's other things. I mean, the congestion charge, you know, which is now coming up to, to uh, uh, 20, well, it is 20 years old, actually, the congestion charge. Um, and Ken Livingstone was counselled against it. He was told, don't do it, Ken, you know, you'll never get re-elected. It's going to cause chaos. And actually, uh, you know, nobody thinks about it anymore. It's not even a discussion anymore. And I, I somewhat suspect that will be the same with this ULAS, particularly as, by definition, it's a diminishing... Uh, uh, there's going to be diminishing return from it because more and more people will get compliant cars and uh, eventually, uh, you know, nobody will pay it at all. Do you not think there's some validity in the argument, though, around suburban London and where it butts up against the, 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 the shires in that, yes, you've mentioned in, in central <clears throat> London, public transport is absolutely fantastic and world class. But around the periphery, that's not really quite the same, is it? No, I think it will impact kind of a wider range of people. But then, you know, you have to look at it from, I think, a wider political perspective. And, and that's what opponents of this type of idea never really take on board, I think. You know, society and then, you know, Sadiq and, and the, the, the Labour Party in London you know, have wider objectives 
that might have a negative impact on some people. And that's what politics is about. You know, you sometimes have to introduce things that not everybody is going to love. You know, it, not everything can be just spent on the National Health Service or, or all the goodies or schools or whatever. Sometimes you kind of have to kind of uh, charge people for things that uh, they might think are unfair. And I think looking at this in a historical perspective, I remember when there was all this fuss about controlled parking zones, CPZs, and every local neighbourhood would have a, a a meeting about this, and they say, "Oh, I shouldn't have the right, you know, why should I be paying for the right to to uh, park outside my own house? It's going to cost me, you know, forty, fifty, sixty quid a year at the time, you know, blah blah blah." And you get Mr. Angry at these meetings, and actually, when you introduce them, and I was in, as it happened, in three areas where they were introduced when I happened to be living there as I moved around London. And every time the relief was palpable, you know, the fact that you could then find a parking space because, you know, it was controlled and that uh, actually the, the the streets were less busy and so on. And I think the same thing will, will happen here. You are you're getting politicians introducing measures which, you know, on the face of it are about uh, uh, certain pollution measures and whatever, but in the longer term are actually about uh, reducing car use and the impact of cars. There's always lots of interest and uh, in and attention given to the potential of driverless cars. And I know this is a subject dear to your heart, uh, Christian. But recently we've, we've seen some developments in relation to driverless buses, haven't we? Yes. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, like a lot of these trials, been going on for ages. And uh, there's a couple of things that uh, have happened recently. First of all, uh, you know, Stagecoach, which is running uh, or hoping to run this 14-mile bus route from uh, the other side, from Fife uh, into uh, Edinburgh over the Fourth Bridge, a Fourth Road Bridge, of course. Um, and uh, it had a trial uh, last week. Uh, this is a driverless bus. This is a driverless bus. Well, yes, Mark, but is it driverless? Ah. That's the question, because uh, they have an operator on board, right? And, uh, you know, it's supposed to drive itself, and we actually don't know to what extent it will drive itself and when the, the, the operator will intervene. But it also has a second person aboard. So it has two people aboard, right? It has so, an engineer. Not a guard then, the, an engineer. No, an engineer <laughs> in case something uh, messes up. And of course, these things get enormous publicity and they say, you know, driverless buses, this is the, 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 the future. Of course, it got a huge three million pound grant from uh, this uh, organisation called Innovate, which is basically a, a, a government uh, agency that kind of funds uh, these sort of things. Um, and uh, they promise that it'll start in the spring. Now, interesting enough, when I was kind of looking at the history of this, uh, it was supposed to start last summer and there were supposed to be trials just before that. Um, and before that, they'd announced that it was going to start in 2021. So uh, as you know, I'm a I, I'm kind of a real uh, slightly nerdy about uh, driverless uh, developments because I've been writing about it for now six or seven years and looking at all these developments. And this is standard procedure in all these trials that they announce a trial they say it's going to happen in so and so date and then that slips by and nothing much happens and then 
there's another uh, delay and then they announce, oh, well, we're going to do it in so-and-so date. Um, but there, there's more than one trial, isn't there, Christian, of this kind of technology? Yes, I mean, uh, First Bus, which of course is, is the you know, other major homegrown uh, bus company that's been around for years, uh, they're getting into the act. They've also got something like a, a three million grant uh, and they're going to uh, run what they call a zero emission autonomous bus trial. Uh, and it's supposed to start uh, by the end of March, uh, February, actually in uh, a, uh, a place called Milton Park, which is a business park in, in, uh, in Oxfordshire. Um, and this will kind of shuttle people around a much smaller, about a mile uh, between the university, university building and uh, uh, an, another, another uh, commercial centre. And um, what's, what's funny about all this is that, A, these are always funded by uh, government. You know, if this was such a brilliant idea, why aren't these companies able to develop it on their own bat? You know, nobody helped Alexander Bell kind of develop his telephone, did he? He did it all on his own bat. And yet all these kind of driverless uh, car trials and driverless bus trials, they're always, it's always us who, who are, are, are paying for them. And the second thing is that they're never driverless. I mean, they've always got somebody on board and they're always... Uh, I mean, I saw Grant Shapps being quoted in, in relation to uh, the one in uh, Scotland saying, you know, this is going to bring in billions of pounds. Autonomous buses are the big future. And honestly, if I had a pound for every time I've seen a politician uh, uh, say this sort of stuff, I'd be pretty rich by now because they're always making these promises about it. And I, I've never quite understood what the obsession is, but... I think there'll be a lot of people nervous about taking a bus, even more nervous than about taking a, a car uh, that is driverless. A bus is much bigger. Um, you know, will they ever really be able to dispense with at least somebody sitting behind it? What happens if the bus kind of suddenly, which happens with driverless uh, technology, suddenly stops because, you know, something's gone wrong or it's a dark place of the computer or whatever, with kind of 25 people aboard? And I suppose what's fundamental to all of this is it devalues the role of the professional driver, doesn't it, in, in this situation? Because what's actually wrong with having people driving buses? What's wrong with having that as a worthwhile profession? Uh, absolutely. And they provide a service and they, they deal with emergencies. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, uh, you know, it's reassuring for people. And in some cases, they collect fares. Uh, so, um, and what do they cost? You know, a driver probably gets £30,000 a year, right? So the the economics just doesn't work, Mark, because the, you think, well, uh, they have to put in all this technology, you know, to, to save £30,000 a year. Is that really going to work? It's not like putting in a supermarket check-in on automatic, which probably, you know, will pay for itself in the end. The, the idea that you invest this vast amount of money to make something that nobody really wants because nobody really wants a driverless vehicle um, and that just does people out of jobs and uh, 
creates a, a worse service because you don't have this kind of person who might help an old lady aboard or help with that. I mean, in, in uh, it's very noticeable when you go abroad and take buses, the, the driver often gets out and helps with the luggage, you know, something that doesn't happen here very much, but, you know, it's something that is nice. So I, I don't see it. But so um, we will continue monitoring this and mentioning it on calling all stations as these trials happen. And I somewhat suspect uh the same thing will happen with these trials that they'll get delayed or they won't work that well or they'll get plainly just forgotten about and as ever as with all of our items and content if any of our listeners want to drop you a line with their views and try to persuade us that uh, driverless buses really are the way forward we'd be very interested in hearing from and you. we'll have we'll be happy to have people on the show or to read out uh, their uh, emails complaining about the fact that we are luddites and stuck in the 20th century and uh, we're really talking rubbish so we'll be really welcome your comments on that Since our last podcast, we've seen the very important announcement of grants being made from the UK Leveling Up Fund. Some of those grants have been for transport-related projects. Christian, you've been taking a deep dive into these. Uh, yes, and uh, there's actually some good news. Hey, let's have a little bit of good news and something, some sensible things that the, the, the government is doing. Um, about uh, 30% of this, amounting to some £650 million, is going to transport schemes. So one cheer for that, right? A second cheer is that uh, some of these uh, schemes that are being supported uh, seem uh, very worthwhile. Uh, you know, some of it is on things like uh, bus schemes in, in West Yorkshire. There's uh, various uh, stations being uh, uh, promoted or, or built. And uh, in the northeast, for the local combined authority, one of these new kind of agencies, there's going to be uh, 50 uh, new electric buses. Um, and, you know, by and large, uh, uh, I think, you know, this is uh, a, a good idea funding kind of schemes like this but there's a couple of problems with it mark one is uh, on the uh, specific nature of some of the schemes and and we'll we'll come to that in a moment but the other is you know the 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 way that this is done right i mean in the old days uh, local authorities basically got grants for this sort of thing as part of uh, the annual rate support grant settlement. Now, uh, some of our older, younger listeners might not remember what that concept was, but basically every year uh, the government would disperse a certain amount of money uh, and it would get announced in sort of November, December, and the local authorities would complain it's not enough and so on. But anyway, that was the process. And now more and more of that money has been taken away. So uh, whereas equivalent values in 2010, they got about 40 billion and now they get about 27 billion through that. And most of that, uh, there's very little discretion, you know, that it goes to all the basic services. So um, in a way, this levelling up is all very well, but it's a bit of a con because uh, they're basically giving the local authorities money back that they would have got under the old uh, system and over more generous grants anyway. Um, and uh, it's it's you know dispersed 
uh, split out, sent out in you know a rather kind of haphazard method. One suspects that there's some kind of political uh, favours uh, going on there, or particular uh, kind of ideas that central government wants to push. So, for example, uh, one of these, um, and this is mentioned by the, your columnist on Cochitamus. Uh, who mentioned this in more detail, and worth looking up, but he basically argues that uh, getting £50 million for Cornwall to get uh, new direct train services, which will link some of their largest areas like Newquay, St Austell, Truro and, and Falmouth, uh, sounds like a good idea. But when you kind of hone down on it, as, as Chris has done, he, he discovers that actually uh, the buses between these areas uh, are much quicker because the train line takes uh, uh, a long way round up and down, particularly to Newquay, up and down the, these kind of uh, the hills and uh, would take, you know, 45, 50 minutes at best because these trains are then have to travel on uh, very windy routes that only go 25 miles an hour or so, and sometimes as low as 15 miles an hour, whereas actually the bus... Uh, would be much quicker. And I think that's a very valid point. So I, I think, and he argues, and I think this is correct, that uh, they thought we must do something for Cornwall. So let's kind of say, oh, we're going to have these direct uh, train services when uh, actually they don't make an enormous amount of sense in, in practical terms. And you wonder, has somebody from the Department for Transport actually looked at this properly or have they just thought, oh, we need some money for Cornwall? So, but then there are better uh, things, and one of those is the Crossrail idea for Cardiff, and uh, this is something I think you've uh, you've uh, know quite a lot about. It's certainly some very interesting transport initiatives are being taken in the Cardiff capital region, and uh, with the, under the leadership of Transport for Wales and um, the Welsh government, and uh, it was very interesting to see. The, the degree to which the UK government was prepared to back the Cardiff Crossrail initiative. And indeed, um, there has been a subsequent announcement, Christian, uh, just a few days ago on joint funding for development of the initiatives around the Burns Commission, uh, which uh, came up with public and active travel-based alternatives uh, following the cancellation on largely environmental and to some degree cost grounds of the proposed new M4 motorway in South Wales. And this was something you've written about previously as well. Uh, yes, no, I covered that. And uh, I must say it does show how uh, Wales is, is pro so progressive in matters of transport. For example, it's kind of imposing a 20 mile an hour zone in uh, most residential areas across the whole of Wales. Um, it has uh, targets about that when you implement government policies, you have to think of people's well-being generally, uh, which is a, a, a great idea. So, and, and some of these are things that I think the, the National uh, Labour Party should adopt for when, it, when hopefully, it wins uh, the next election. But uh, the Burns Commission, I thought, was some uh, a really interesting I I initiative. I remember writing about this uh, now about two and a half years ago, I think in November uh, 2020, uh, because it was born out of the fact that the Welsh government had the courage to say, no, we're not going to widen the M4. 
between uh, the the border, in fact, the Southern Tunnel and Newport, and then and then Cardiff. Um, even though it's the busiest part of uh, the, the motorway network in Wales. No, we're not going to do that. And what we're going to do instead is generally look at uh, the alternatives. And uh, the, the impressive aspect of this, that report was, you know, it really honed down on, you know, why people need to travel around there, what the journeys they were making were, and what feasible alternatives there were. And the key alternative, of course, was to make better use of the South Wales line, because at the moment, uh, there is a stop at Seven Tunnel, and then pretty much uh, nothing much until Newport. And the idea was, and then pretty much from Newport to Cardiff, uh, uh, without any intermediate stops again. And so the idea was, and there's, there's already four tracks and a lot of it, I only need to add a track in some bits of it. Um, so it's relatively, I mean, relatively cheap in the, in the ways that rail schemes are uh, are ever cheap. But uh, it, it's certainly doable. And um, now uh, what I understand has happened is that there's now inevitably a feasibility study into it, even though uh, I always think those things, are uh, feasibility studies are often ways of kind of slowing down progress. But nevertheless... And interestingly enough, as you point out, this is a joint effort between uh, the Tory national government and the Labour uh, local government. And I think one of the aspects of this is that Mark Drayford, as the First Minister in Wales, um, has become something of a national figure as a result of uh, a lot of good work he did uh, during the, the pandemic. fact that... Uh, He's a slightly alternative form of politician. He's very low-key, but very steady, somewhat patrician, um, and clearly likeable and quite modest. And I think he's, he's, rather than taking a confrontational attitude with the central government, and that's tempting because uh, they are not easy to deal with, I think he's managed to establish these sort of links and got kind of... Uh, joint deals with uh, central government led by the uh, other political party. And so I think that's that's very much uh, uh, down to him, very much a, a credit to uh, the work of the Welsh government. And uh, I, I stress that this is something that, you know, Labour, if it comes to power, should look at what, what has happened in Wales over the last um, uh, three or four years. I think it's worth mentioning as well that the developments along the M4 corridor integrate nicely with the Union Connectivity Review that was undertaken by Sir Peter Hendy a year or two back at the behest of the UK government, where he gave a warm welcome to the findings of the Burns Commission and moved those partly from the Welsh agenda to the UK agenda. And we're still waiting for the government's full response to the Union Connectivity Review. Yes, and uh, uh, to Peter Hendy's credit, he also ditched the idea that uh, there could be a tunnel or a bridge or some connection between uh, uh, Scotland, the, the west coast of Scotland and the east uh, coast of uh, Ireland, which would have been the longest tunnel in the world and 
uh, connecting some very not particularly busy kind of roads up there. And uh, uh, so he was much more warm about uh, uh, Wales, and, and rightly so, because uh, you know they, they have done uh, uh, undertaken a lot of uh, good initiatives. Here's Christian's thought from the Departure Lounge. Well, uh, there's been a lot of fuss about HS2 over the last uh, week or so. There's a madcap idea to suggest that it could end up in uh, Old Oak Common, which uh, nobody knows where that is apart from me because I used to be a train spotter and shed number 1A was Old Oak Common on the Great Western. Perhaps there are some train spotters out there, remember? And I can tell you this, that ain't going to happen. I mean, HS2 cannot end in uh, West London, five miles away from the centre, uh, and uh, with only the Elizabeth Line to connect it in. Now, whether HS2 should or should not happen is another question uh, for another day on this podcast. But I can tell you, Old Oak Common as the terminus, non-starter. And thank you for listening to me. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you've enjoyed our podcast, do subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use. And if you would, please give us a five-star rating.